This episode of The Sporting Spirit is brought to you by our listeners who support us on patreon.com slash the sporting spirit podcast. As we're an independent podcast without any major sponsors, we are reliant on any help that you are capable of giving. Whether it's by just contributing five euros a month or even if it's by sharing the link of this podcast to colleagues, friends or family. As always, peace and love. And a really warm welcome back to this week's episode of The Sporting Spirit. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host Carl from Sweden. Um, and unlike previous weeks, I'm recording on quite a nice sunny sunny afternoon here in Malaysia. Carl, how has your weekend been? Have you been up to much? First of all, I also say that I'm glad that we managed to find this time to do it so you don't have to be up all night recording. So I'm glad for that. But my weekend has been, it's been all right. It's quite boring. You know, I feel like all the weekends just look the same. Now you basically just at home chilling. But yeah, I'm still <laughs> staying positive though. So yeah, no, I, I think he, I think everyone has had the same problem, right? I think everyone has had to be quite creative with the way they spend their weekends over the last year almost now. Um, how how's how's your sporting weekend been, Carl? What what have you got for us in terms of news? One thing I want to talk about, I want to focus on one particular uh, soccer slash football player uh, that made his comeback uh, this weekend. Uh, he's been out for the game for about a year for different reasons, and uh, the player I'm talking about is Mesut Özil that made his uh, debut with Fenerbahce, and it wasn't against anyone. It was against Galatasaray mm -hmm. in the big rivalry game. He didn't have that much of an impact on the game, and Galatasaray won one nothing. But I still feel like it's. Uh, I'm I'm quite happy to see Özil back on the pitch where he belongs. He's still a great player, but as we will talk about, he's probably one of the most polarizing. Uh, players out there as well both on and off the pitch absolutely right and I think we spoke about this before like myself and Carl about Mesut Ozil's off-field um, controversies for lack for lack of a better word but I think his on-field persona is as controversial as his off-field you know sort of life so we're talking about a player who from the beginning you know was deemed as this perfect representation of an immigrant heritage player assimilating really well into, into yeah. German society and being a huge part of, of the German national football team. Um, yeah. Don't forget that he won the World Cup with them, right? Okay. And, and even then, there was loads of controversy, you know, with towards the later part of his years in the national team, you know, about his contribution, about his allegiance, you know, um, which I think Carl will talk about later on. But on, on the field, sticking to on the field, you know, from all the clubs he's been with, at Real Madrid, um, at, at Arsenal as well, some people love him you know, for what he brings to the team, that bit of magic, um, that's kind of throwback style, the way he plays football, not this sort of, you know, high energy pressing that we're so used to these days. Um, yeah. Where some people, not hate him, but you know, they, they find him a really lazy, lethargic player who only plays well if the team plays well. And if the team doesn't play well, he's not really a game changer. Yeah. I also think just because of his play style on the pitch, it's just, it's so obvious when he doesn't have a good game and people criticize him as well because as you said he's not high energy because if a player with high energy has a bad game you can at least say oh he tried you can see he's working hard yeah he's having a bad game but he's working hard also this kind of guy like when he's good he's really really good and you can see that on the pitch he's brilliant but if he's off he looks terrible because he's not that kind of a guy that's like okay i have a bad day but i'm gonna work really hard and try to fight so that's that. But as you also mentioned as well, like I feel like I'm more interested in his uh, persona off the pitch. It's I feel like it's quite interesting his evolution as a, as, as that this per, as this person. As you said, he started off as being this uh, became the symbol for perfect integration in Germany. Uh, and as you and you also have to note that Angela Merkel took almost every chance when the German football team was playing and they did well. She was down in the locker room taking pictures mm. uh, with this kind of players to like promote them. Yeah. And then later on, uh, for some reason, as some article says, Mr. Ersel did not change as a person. The world around him changed. You can see in Germany, you had the, the migration crisis in 2015. You have AFD rising to become the third biggest party 
in Germany, and then he became the symbol of being this kind of an immigrant instead in Germany. He's not German. And when the German team plays bad, oh, look at this. We have too many immigrants on our team. So it became that kind of a symbol. And then we have this kind of a, a situation as well, where he's taking pictures with the president of Turkey, Erdogan. And that's also a thing that in Germany, oh, look, he's not having allegiance to Germany. He's taking pictures with the Turkish president. He's more Turkish than he is German. But at the same time, there were other uh, German-Turkish uh, German players that took pictures with Erdogan that did not get as much criticism as Mesut Özil did. No, I, I totally agree with that. I think he's he's become a scapegoat, right, for a lot of these issues, not just within Germany, but internationally as well. And I think both on and off the field, we see this pattern. Um, and I don't know whether interesting is the right word to describe it as, but I think it's quite... It's quite eerie how you know, uh, sort of his his off and on the field um, personas are actually quite similar in the sense that he's very polarizing. Yeah. Um, but touching upon actually something which we've talked about that links into what Özil has talked about before, that is mm. his um, defense or rather his his calling out of China on their persecution of Uyghur Muslims in Northwest China. Uh, recently, and I say recent, I think only a couple of days ago the leader of the Liberal Democrats, quite a centrist political party in the UK, um, Ed Davey, came out and said that British athletes should boycott next year's Winter Games in Beijing. Um, and he was supported by a number of other politicians, including um, the Labour MP, Chris Bryan, who's a member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Um, and this is something which we've talked about before. I think even with Jörg, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the possibility of a boycott happening. Um, and he said that he couldn't see that happening. Um, but here we have actual elected members of parliament in the UK government mm. telling British athletes and the British Olympic Committee that they should boycott the Games. Yeah. The only question I have, like how many athletes do Great Britain have in Winter Olympics? Actually, I don't know. Yeah, they're not that famous for winter sports. Sure. So I, I, I get your point. I think in in that sense, that it wouldn't be that much of a boycott, right? Say, if it was, for example, the summer games. You know, if, if for example, yeah. you know, it was summer games in Beijing next year, and you know, the British Olympic team um, boycotted the games, that that would be a huge statement. But obviously, as as you rightly mentioned, I'm not sure how many athletes are sending to Beijing. But even if they bring in a really small contingent of players, if those players were to boycott the games, it would be a huge statement. Yeah, I agree that would be a great statement. And it kind of goes into what Ursula as well was saying, as you said, like it's a bigger loss as well to protest China than to like protest other countries or to boycott. For example, now when we talk about the, the world championship for ice hockey in Belarus, yeah, to boycott Belarus, it's, you don't lose that much money of boycotting Belarus, but to boycott China... That's a bigger financial loss there. So that's also why you can talk about Mesut Özil here, because when he talked about the Uyghur issue and the support for the Uyghurs, Arsenal did not support Özil. They almost like pushed him away to like distance themselves from Özil in his statement, just because they were so afraid of retaliation from, from China. Other issues for like example, Hector Bellerin, a player for Arsenal, when he spoke out about Boris Johnson and all that, they supported him. When uh, uh, Aubameyang, Talk, uh, talk about boycotting or protesting the Nigerian government. They even supported him as well because there's not much of a financial loss to protest Nigeria, to protest Boris Johnson in the UK. But to go out and protest and boycott China? Absolutely right. I think these are all the issues that we've covered previously. We've talked about the financial repercussions that essentially deter actions by, you know, by the so-called um, leading actors in, 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 in sports. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out um, with regards to the, the Winter Games in China next year and to see if any of these proposed boycotts actually go through. Um, I highly doubt so. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, we'll wait and see. But I also hope that Ursul keeps on playing for yeah. some more years at least and he stays out of trouble. Definitely, yeah. I think we're quite big fans of Ursul on this podcast. And uh, yeah, the, a thriving Urzel is only good for, you know, football lovers. To move away from um, from Mesut Urzel, who we could talk about for hours and hours on this show, we've got a really interesting guest today. 
who is the general secretary of an organization called EU Athletes. I don't want to give away too much um, of what she, she does and what her organization does. So without much further ado, let's get to it. And on this week's episode, we have Paulina Tomczyk, who is the General Secretary of EU Athletes, the European Federation of Player Unions and Athlete Associations. Working in the organization since 2015, she has been responsible for coordinating the common policy of its 35 member organizations and re representing their voice at different European forums, including the European Union, the Council of Europe, as well as the enlarged Partial Agreement on Sport. Or also known as EPAS, to name just a few. On top of that, Paulina also somehow finds the time to be an executive committee member of the World Players Association. Paulina, thanks so much for coming on our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just to start off, could you tell us a little bit more about your organization, EU Athletes? Sure. Uh, so, as you mentioned, uh, we are a federation of player unions and athlete associations. But interestingly, we already have 38 members. Um, so the number change, I think it's a very, very good sign. Uh, we had three new members joining um, this year. So um, we have um, member player or athlete associations from different sports and different countries in Europe. At the moment, it's uh, 18 European countries and more than 10 different sports. Um, I think traditionally it would be it would be team sports, professional uh, team sports that would be most unionized. So we have uh, cricket, rugby, uh, football, futsal, volleyball, ice hockey, and so on and so on. Um, but we also see this tendency now to have uh, to have athletes association in um, in individual sports in in Olympic sports. Um, we also have some maybe uh, unusual members, for example, Gaelic Players Association. I think mm. for someone who's from Ireland, uh, that's very clear, but, uh, but for, for other people, it, it's, it's uh, um, maybe more unusual. It's, it's an amateur, uh, but, but very high level sport. And I think what is interesting is that this you know, very different mix of organizations uh, come together and they actually find uh, common goals and common causes uh, to work on. So our role is to represent those athletes who are members of, of different player unions and athlete association to make sure that their voice is heard at the European level, to form collective policies uh, on behalf of the members. And of course, that, that can be time consuming sometimes when, when you're trying to make sure that, that you know, everyone is uh, on the same page. Um, and big part of our work is also running different kind of projects um, that allow members to learn from each other, to exchange good practices um, and enhance their capacity. So in the end, they are able, able to better support um, the athletes that they represent. Sure. Thanks so much for that. And I, I want to go deeper into some of the stuff that you talked about, particularly about your role as a um, EU athletes in representing your member organizations. But just before I go into that, what is your role as the general secretary of EU athletes? Um, let's say your day-to-day -day work and the tasks that you're in charge of. That's that's a good question. I mean, now under the, the pandemic times, yeah. it's easier to talk about typical day because mm. <laughs> every day is more <laughs> or less the same. But I would say before the pandemic, I would hardly have uh, you know a typical day. Um, because the tasks uh, are really broad, I would say, and the landscape is sometimes changing quite quite quickly, and we also have to react to that. But um, generally, my role as, a, as, as the general secretary um, is the overall management of the organization. So, uh, you know, setting priorities, uh, work plan, uh, working on finances and administration and so on, just uh, making sure that the, that the association function in a proper way. Um, I also, depending of course on the meeting, but I, I do this uh, representation part um, of representing, representing the, the association at the European Union and at the Council of Europe. Um, I have been based in, to, in Brussels since uh, 2015, mm. uh, working full-time for EU athletes. So of course, considering um, how many things are happening um, in Brussels related to sports, I think this is uh, this is really important. Um, 
I'm also the manager for uh, for um, EU funded project that we coordinate with EU athletes, and they can uh, they can really touch upon very different topics from uh, dual career, um, education, match fixing, gender equality, and so on and so on. Um, and um, I think that's that's more or less it. It's a uh, it's but I think big part big part of of work is really coordinating the voices of, of members, um, monitoring what is happening with them, monitoring what their priorities are, mm. because our, our goal is really to bring the voice of members um, at the, at the, of the athletes themselves at the European level. So this is kind of happening by, by layers. So we have our national associations who are in very close contact with, with athletes themselves. And then um, we, by being in, in regular contact and hearing their feedback and hearing about situation in different sports and countries, are able to really, you know, be close, uh, be close to the situation and know what the issues are. Yeah, and I think you already touched upon a few things that I was going to ask you, um, but just just to go back a bit, maybe. So we know that the role of trade unions in Europe can be traced back to medieval guilds, even um, and unionism in its modern day form can be, can be traced back to the early 19th century. So it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a very established thing in Europe. Player associations are widely regarded as sport trade unions in terms of the work they do to enhance and protect the welfare of the athletes that they represent. Now, as you mentioned, as, as the federation of, I may term it, sport trade unions, why is it important that athletes in Europe are represented? Well... I think just as a, as a very, very basic right uh, for every person to be represented um, in the matters that affect you. So that, that really goes uh, to the, I think, to the, to the core of, of this question. Absolutely. Um, and so um, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, player unions, athletes associations, sports trade unions, I, I think we can use those, ter those terms kind mm -hmm. of, uh, yeah. They're, they're not exactly the same, but we use it uh, interchangeably, I think. Yeah. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of those bodies actually have been created because athletes have been disappointed in the way that they um, have, ha well, actually haven't been involved in the governance of their sport. And they felt that their rights were not respected. Um, so they really felt that they, they, they needed to create something on their own, really bring players together, mm -hmm. uh, decide what they wanted to do and how they want to do it, and um, really negotiate with, um, with uh, sports organization or on partnership terms, as opposed to this other model that we have uh, with uh, athletes committees or athletes commissions, yeah. which are, of course, more internal and, and just consultative um, bodies. Um, so I think really just, uh, you know, giving, giving, uh, or rather respecting uh, this, this right that the player have to, to organize, to collectively bargain, to, to create an association. Um, this is actually a matter of, uh, of human rights, um, I would say. But at the same time, um, this is a way to really make sport better. And uh, I wish more sports organization would look at this this way. Because, you know, way too often um, there, is, there is a very negative reaction when players or athletes are trying to, to create associations. They would hear, but what, what, what's your problem? You know, mm. you have an athletes committee and we actually, you know, give you a tracksuit or something. But uh, um, sports organization, I think it would be better for them and for everyone if they looked at this as an opportunity to work in partnership with athletes and really... Um, acknowledge the fact that they know best um, what the situation is and what they need and uh, just use this opportunity to, to, to really use the added value that they could bring into governance um, of sport. I find what you just said tremendously interesting because I think just the variety and the diversity in tasks that both yourself as, as the general secretary as well as your organization EU athletes have to perform day in day out week in week out um, representing athletes is quite important and obviously really, really challenging. The athlete's workplace is quite complex, quite dynamic and quite different to other industries. Could you talk to us about that a bit? Mm -hmm. 
yeah it's uh it's it's true it's, it's a very very wide range uh, of issues mm. um there would be there would be definitely um some areas where um the national player associations would mo would wor work more closely with the athletes themselves and then eu athletes again would would serve as a platform to exchange best practices and and let's say as a megaphone um, at the european level for for this voice but um for sure, athletes' representation, it, it's a very, you know, basic first thing that, that we are working on, really advocating on what I was talking about before, the, the importance of this independent athletes' representation and importance of respecting that rights uh, of athletes. The, um, the, the, the rights uh, at work and the working conditions, labor rights, uh, this is a second uh, extremely important point. Um, I think it's 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 um, yeah. If you say it's it's complicated, complex situation that players are working on. I think still sometimes looking at, at the fact that a lot of professional players are actually playing without contracts, mm. um, you know, or how yeah. many of them uh, don't have labor contracts, they don't have proper insurance, and and all those issues that we're still seeing in Europe in the twenty first century, you know, it's it's frankly unacceptable but that would be national unions who are working on this really directly for example um, bringing clubs to court so uh, they have to pay debts to to to, uh, to players to athletes and for us that we would on that same topic for example um, advocate for for better research mapping and some of the guidance to be taken by european union and council of europe so I think the problem is also we, we, we don't even exactly know sometimes the, the size of the abuse um, of, of athletes' rights uh, in sport. We hear a lot of stories. I think that, uh, you know, that, that paints quite a sad picture. Um, with, with the COVID-19, um, yeah, I think it, it really has brought to light a lot of those issues, really some players... Uh, you know, who, who didn't have a proper contract or had uh, or had no contract at all, they would really mm. find themselves in a, in the extremely difficult situation and without the possibility to to access some um, income support schemes. Um, and I think, well, the, the crisis should really be looked at as an opportunity to to repair uh, those issues. But so this is something that that we are trying to. Um, push for as well. So we'll see how it goes. Um, I think besides that, um, it's it's a bit related also to, to the main topics of uh, the European Union. So mm -hmm. of course, um, we are presenting those as well. So for example, um, integrity, fight against match fixing. Um, we have been running a, quite a pioneer program, I would say, already since uh, 2010 um, on, on prevention of match fixing. Um, anti-doping, uh, dual career, uh, good governance. And um, I would add to that some, something that is very important for, for player association is um, athlete development, well-being and uh, health, general health, but also mental health. I think this is a topic that it's gaining more and more um, importance. And uh, it's a really important um, way in which player association can support their players because this is not not something that it's always taking into account in their sports career, you know, areas such as actual mental well-being, for example, and and you know, and and their personal development, not only as a player but also as a person um, outside the pitch. Yeah, no, I, you've covered so many um, different issues that that EU athletes. Um, cover and, and as you mentioned it's an ever-changing thing is dynamic is complex particularly in this in this period of time but i think something which is i won't say more important than the others but something which is central to the work that you guys do is is um protecting the rights of athletes as workers right um, and i just want to bring something up quickly a common position paper which you guys published in 2018 and and the paper stated quote amateurism must not be forced upon sports people against their will especially if they're involved in an economic activity. Such athletes are excluded from social security provisions, employment protection, including basic labor contracts, and collectively bargained regulations. Um, in addition, the paper also stated that all athletes, especially young players, have the right to be paid the national minimum wage for the hours 
that they work. Uh, and in quote, and this is something which we've talked about quite a bit on this show. What, what is, as you mentioned, the role of EU athletes in championing the employment rights of sportsmen and women all across Europe? Mm. Um, yeah, I think um, it's well the, the issue that the issue that really is behind that that fragment that you quoted. Um, I think it's it's is this uh, rhetoric that we're still hearing that athletes are actually you know they're not workers, they're not professionals. Even if we are talking about someone who is actually going to the Olympics, yeah. training twice a day, really you know try to tell them they're not professional. <laughs> so uh, uh, they are really asked to behave as a professional, but the moment we are we are starting to talk about rights um, or you know all the all the different conditions and provisions that comes with those rights, we hear that no no no, but you know they, they we cannot do that at all. Mm. Um, this is um, you know um, it's it's a very long process, I would say. It's mm. it's a very very important battle. Um, that um, is brought forward a lot again by the. I, I'm always, uh, I think, focusing on telling a lot of positive things about our national members doing amazing work, but really they are the ones who um, who are bringing this forward. Um, it's an important, you know, the the, the national law actually is, is a very important um, element to that. Um, and there have been quite quite a lot of player associations that managed to professionalize their their sport, you know. At, which it's kind of funny, you know. You're just like one day you're not professional, some days later you're doing exact same work, but mm. now all of a sudden you're professional. Um, you know, I, I mean that a lot of those athletes who are who are being called not professional, they're yeah. already, you know. Um, really complying with, with sure. this definition that we would have of, yeah. of a worker. Absolutely. Um, but it really is athletes coming to, together and demanding this right, you know, like we are professional, we deserve this. Um, our role would be uh, to support those kind of initiatives. So um, if we have, for example, let's say a group of players in basketball in, uh, um, I don't know, Lithuania, who I'm, you know, inventing this, but let's say they contact us uh, and they say, hey, we would like to, we just learning about your website. We would like to fight for our rights, create an association. Can you help us? So since we already have very well established association, either in that same country or in that same sport, we are able to put them in contact with our network and also with, you know, with, from our experience to serve them with, with advice, with support, and really explain the process as well as you know just give them the support of of, um, of the 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 state the like a staple of approval of mm. an european association uh in their fight when it comes to eu athletes um you know for us uh to, to, to really get involved into, into something specific, it has to be for a case that has uh, implications for, for athletes uh, in Europe in general, or you know, it would be a very, very important precedent. So for example, we had very recently um, the judgment of the general court in the ISU case, probably familiar with, with yeah. this yeah. called uh, yeah, so-called the new bossman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, this, this, this case um, initially brought by, by two speed skaters, um, you know, who, who wanted to fight for their opportunity to, to take part in, uh, in commercial events and to, to be able to, to make some money during their very short career and actually, you know, be treated as professional professionals. Yep. This is something that EU athletes uh, have been involved in as third interested party and we supported, uh, supported this fight. Um, you know, to, for us to allow also to, to see athletes um, more as professionals, I would say, even in such a sport as um, as speed skating, mm. which is rather rather small, and most of athletes wouldn't be, let's say, according to this very strict definition, professional. They wouldn't have labor contracts. Right. Um, but it has to be recognized that they're actually doing. You know, they're they're selling their their work. And they they should have 
an opportunity to, to work for different parties and not be forced by, by um, sports federation just to take part in, in uh, those official competitions. Mm. Yeah. I think it's it's again it's a it's a it's a really crucial part of what you guys do and it's really interesting because um as as you were speaking um I was thinking about the fact that you know how and I'm talking about Europe of course and because in the global south in, in places like Malaysia where I'm from it's even I think the situation is even worse um in terms of you know um an athlete's rights to worker but we we treat other professions the way they should be treated by and large anyway in Europe, right? For example, I'm thinking, you know, a worker in Aldi, for example, you know, has his or her rights. And so, so does a musician, for example, who makes his or her music. Why, why do you think there is this, this difference between other industries and sport? Mm. Yeah, it's, that's a good philosophical question. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, part of it would be that um, sport, this is, this, it, it's, it's a job, it's a work for a professional athlete, but also it has such a strong emotional component. You know, if, if you're an athlete, you're really dreaming about going to the Olympics. You're, and at some point you're leaving your dream or, you know, you have next goals and just um, there, is this, there is this whole motivation um, around that, I think, that makes it maybe easier to kind of... Um, get athletes to agree on things that shouldn't be agree agreed upon mm. you know if mm, like yeah. what do you do do you want to be a troublemaker and get kicked out of the squad and be replaced by someone else you know there unless unless you're a totally the top star yeah there will always be someone to replace you right yeah. so there yeah. is this uh this this situation is is, is very difficult and mm. um it's just this really huge imbalance um of power i think between sports organizations and uh and at least that that allows that and um i mean it's this um i think this you know like sport is a business in the end you know, of course, there is grassroots sports, there is sports, uh, you know, that, that we all do if, if we're motivated enough to go for a jog in the park and, and so on. Um, but it, it, it is a business and it generates um, very big revenues. But a lot of sports organizations keep on trying to just paint themselves as those NGOs that shouldn't be kept to the same standards as big corporations. We see that also with, um, you know, with some of the cases um, at the European Commission as, the, as the, the, the ISU case that I've mentioned. I think, of course, the, the response from the side of the Olympic movement also was, well, because of specificity of sport, we should be able to do this and we shouldn't be put under the same rules as, as corporations. Um, so I think it's, yeah, the, the, this this philosophy, let's say, of of trying to be uh, painted as as somehow different and therefore not uh, not obliged to comply with the with the same rules. And yeah, the 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 fact that sport is is the dream for a lot. Yeah, those are really good points, and I totally agree with you. It's almost seen. I think people almost see being a sportsman or woman as as a privilege, right? That, that as you said, yeah. there is an emotional connection. There is this, yeah. you know, people always throw around words like passion, you know, and, and somehow, you know, you, you shouldn't monetize that. On one hand, I think at least like you're lucky you're even playing or you're lucky yeah. you even got this or this. It's, I think yeah. they, it's kind yeah. of hurt quite often. And exactly. uh, yeah, I think the fact of also on um, how much athletes sacrifice also financially for, for their sports careers, careers is, is, romanticized too much i would say mm. you know like there's an athlete who would say well i i crown funded i uh, i had a, another job I, I did it i did this just uh -huh. to have a chance to go to the olympics it shouldn't be like this no, no. i have uh, i have I, I used to do judo yeah. um not at a very high level so i didn't even get to dreaming about the olympics but i still have friends who who are um, in the national team and I hear those stories from them you know now I think knowing more about athletes rights it's it's really yeah it enrages me a bit <laughs> absolutely and carrying on in, in the same vein um, I, I want to talk about 
EU athletes' role in in terms of being actually heard by you know the policymakers, decision makers in Brussels? Because obviously we know that since the um, Treaty of Lisbon, the EU has a in inverted commas soft competence um, for issues within the sporting realm, right? What has EU athletes been doing actually to be heard by these policymakers? Mm. Um, yeah, it, there is quite a lot of opportunities to to be heard. It's true, as as you mentioned, it, it's a soft competency. Then again, there are some harder competencies that that are, that are also related to sports. So there again, there would be a wide range of um, of topics or, or DGs and bodies to to take mm. um, contact with. Um, we have been present in uh, expert groups, different bodies, consultations, working group at the, at the EU level since 2012. Um, so it really allows us to have this consistent, uh, you know, consistent uh, presence, um, consistent voice. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, well, it's, it's not an easy job to, to really change the system, I would say. So that's obviously, it doesn't happen overnight. But I have noticed already since uh, I'm, I'm with the organization for six years now, almost. Um, so when I started, the, rarely we would talk about athletes' rights in a meeting. You know, if, if, you know, just the fact of raising my hand and say, hey, but, you know, you forgot about athletes' perspective here, and I would add that and that, that would be rather single voice. And that's really changed, I think. The topic of athletes' rights, um, athletes' representation have gained so much, uh, so much space now at the, at the European level. It has been discussed at, uh, discussed at uh, you know, at various events and mm. um I'm, I'm quite happy that now for with the next uh, EU work plan for sport, we actually have the topic of, um, of athletes, right? I don't want to like misspoke now what's the exact title of that, uh, but uh, athletes, right? And including also economic rights. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's obviously something that it's, uh, that it's very important. And similarly at the, at the Council of Europe um, in Strasbourg, um, we we are a um, consultative committee member of uh, of EPAS, um, and we are involved also in uh, uh, anti-doping work um, with the with the work of group um, of the monitoring of the Council of Europe Convention. Um, there have been some very interesting work that we have been involved in, specifically in anti-doping, for example, on. Um, um, rights to fair trial for athletes, and now there is some, um, some, some also ongoing work related to that or to whistleblowers, uh, and it's I think it's it's very important. Or when it comes to to the Macaulay Convention um, and the process so far, um, so we we have been present there, and uh, again I think the topic of uh, of athletes' rights, even if it doesn't always you know it, it's difficult. Uh, to always have it your way, obviously, there are a lot of different organizations uh, that are very vocal, so um, so th there is some compromise to be done. But I think it's, it's a really positive already development for us that we have more discussions, that we it's actually being acknowledged that there is this problem you know, related to athletes' rights, related to their working conditions, and, and so on. Yeah, I, th I think what you said there is hugely encouraging, and, and if I remember anything from my course um, studying sport policy, one word which you always use was compromise. And I feel like in Brussels, that is, you know, the word, right? And, and particularly in a field like, like sport, yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously hugely important just to be at the table, to be able to voice um, your thoughts, your ideas, and your stance on certain issues. Um, and to move even deeper into your organization, because you, you talked about now EU athletes being um, a representative of all these different athletes, right? My question is, how, how do you ensure that at, at the lower level, the members' voices within youth athletes are being heard? Because, you know, as you mentioned, you've got so many different members. You've got big diversity between the members of the different sports associations. How is that possible to be able to make sure that everyone is being heard in the organization? Mm. Yeah. 
that's a, it's that's a good question it's a lot of work <laughs> um well for me so i unfortunately in my day-to-day -day job i don't work with athletes directly i sometimes have possibility to to hear from them yeah. at the event in some consultations um and so on but the way it works uh with us i would say it's uh it's bottom up so um Again, it's the it's the national associations at the national level who have very close contacts with the members. Um, so what they would do normally mm. um, every year, at least they would uh, do those so-called um, locker room visits. So they would actually visit every squad in the given sport in given country to talk about the union, to explain what is going on, to talk about some of the main issues, to hear their concerns. Um, yes, yeah, so they would actually, you know, spend quite quite a lot of time uh, on the road, and then um, there would be also other opportunities for for member athletes to to you know they can always get in touch. Um, different services that are mm -hmm. being provided at the national level. It's also something that obviously gives very good um, very good overview about what the problems that the athletes are facing are, you know, if it's um, mental health, financial issues, contract issues, or, or other um, other things. Um, so, yeah, so the, the members, they would have this strong link with the players. And I think this is key for, for our work, really, um, that they have this direct and close contacts. And then you athletes, um, we work with the representatives of those associations who actually have been elected um, by the by the athletes themselves. Mm. So then we have our structures and our um, either working groups or uh, you know consultation processes. Um, there isn't always you know all of the members working on on every issue. I would mm. say because they are very different. We have, for example, some that, that would be more interested in in some areas and not necessarily um, in the others. But um, yeah, I think we we just really make sure again that everyone is heard. And I think uh, you know bigger associations, smaller associations, developing one are very well established. I think it, there's always opportunity to learn from from each other, and yeah, I think that's why every voice counts. So, like in short, I think it's just a lot of talking, <laughs> a lot of talking to make sure that that everyone is is really heard and that we have the the full um, or as as much as possible uh, full view of the situation. Yeah, and I think again, like it's 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 super. It's it's just really nice to hear that. Um, you have got this, as you mentioned, bottom-up approach and that you are engaging with all the stakeholders, no matter how big or small they are, um, no matter the way they are um, in Europe as well. I think that's, yeah, that's really important work, um, especially in these yeah. times. You know, I think sometimes it's a challenge as well. I mean, or what we, or it, it, it brings a little bit of difficulties because what we can support athletes in creating player association, we can offer them help, advice, and so on, but we obviously cannot go to a country and establish player association there. Mm. It really has has to be at least driven. Um, so that's why it's 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 a long process, and it can we we see we see that on the map of our members, we have quite a big number of associations, for example, from from UK, Ireland, France, Spain, um, and then. If we move east, uh, it's a little bit more more difficult, but mm. it's it's an ongoing work as well um, with that. Absolutely, um, and yeah, I I just want to touch on a point which I think I I have to talk about because you know every guest I've had on for the last year I have I have to sort of end the episode this way, and we're talking about the pandemic, right? And I I don't want to talk about it too much, but it's been a year now since almost a year since the the beginning of the pandemic and the crisis within sport as well with the whole thing of different sport events. Um, what what role has the EU athletes played in supporting its athletes during these pandemic times? And, and a year on from the crisis, how taxing has this been on, on your organization and the work that it does? Yeah, I think it's a, 
it's been a year already that's <laughs> that's a hard uh, thought to accept um, but it's true yeah um I, I i think both our action and the member action it, it really changed through time you know it started um there was a little bit of a moment of confusion even i would say there were some organizations that were already canceling games or you know other ones that weren't um even available public information was was not that clear um and athletes were actually looking at uh, at, at their associations to get some uh, you know some advice on that on what they should be doing or you know to take a stand on if the the competition should be stopped um or not um i think when we when we entered then the the, the first lockdown um really big issue was you know, on how to how to deal with with this situation, and really make sure that the athletes association are involved and that their voices is heard. I think, unfortunately, as I mentioned before, we had some cases where, and actually, that in a research um, that we did, we learned that almost half of our player association um, have had cases of contracts being terminated or modified unlawfully you know without mm. without the consent of, of athletes because of the pandemic so that was a big issue so you know the the approach that we wanted to have and i think a lot of a lot of sports did in the end and that's that's positive is to really work in partnership so you know sit down with the with the player unions talk about what approach should be taken um in many cases players accepted either you know pay cuts or um or postpone payment of of uh, of their salaries um but of course it's a com completely different issue if this is something that is just being uh, imposed on them um or if it's uh you know clubs that it's kind of trying to benefit from this situation uh to to, to make some uh, um, additional money. I think that it's you know a lot more um, complicated. And for for player association, it has really been a busy period. Um, mm. It was over ninety percent of our player association who said that the demand for service, so demand for support from from association on the side of athletes, increased during the pandemic. I think that's quite obvious, right? It's uh, yeah. Uh, there are a lot of issues, especially related to to, to legal issues or um, or uh, financial support, um, you know, information or, or things like that. Um, so yeah, we saw that that players were really going towards association for support, and we actually saw quite a lot of in, um, increase in the membership for over a half of, of our members. So um, again, I think that that pointed to uh, to that. We really um, were again trying to serve to our best capacity as a platform uh, for member associations to exchange between them. And especially since there was a very new situation, there was a need for this communication between players, you know. So, for example, you're just asking, like, so how how much are they testing you in your league? You know, how often and what's the protocol and so on. So do you, and so those kind of conversation between between player association between, in different sports and countries, mm. I think it was it was really uh, really beneficial. And then we we were and we still are um, advocating on those points, you know, coming from from the research uh, at the European level. On this pandemic, it's obviously a global pandemic, uh, so we are also a member of World Player Associations, um, which is a uh, it's it's a um, just global body that represent uh, player associations from, from different countries in Europe. So besides us, it, that also includes FIFPRO, American unions, um, some player associations from Australia, from Japan. Um, and with them, they, they have been leading quite a lot of good work uh, really related to this, uh, to, to, to learning from each other, exchanging mm -hmm. uh, best practices um, and so on. It's a bit of different perspective, of course, in the in the bubble uh, environment that they mm -hmm. had in in US, for example. But again, this is something that that even the smallest association can learn from, I think.
from what you said, I feel like if, if there's one good thing that's come out of this period in time, but if you can even call it a good thing, is the fact that obviously the inequalities between big and small sport organizations, um, the power dynamics between players and their bosses um, who pay their wages or don't pay their wages rather has been highlighted. Do you think this will be a legacy for, for sport, particularly in Europe, in terms of athletes, I guess, being more brave to, to sort of voice out their opinion and, and make sure that they are in that decision-making process? Yeah, um, I hope so. I think there is, there is the, mo- the movement of, uh, of player association and the voices of athletes really are growing stronger. Mm. Um, and I think that's, that's an ongoing trend for some time now. Um, and obviously, really just the fact that players are coming together and, and deciding, they want to decide or their own fate, they want to you know, just take it in, into their hands. Uh, this can already hugely change the, the power dynamic in a given country. But I think the, um, the support and the acknowledgement from the public side from government, states, from uh, international organization, and for, further really highlighting this importance of, of, of this movement um, and those athletes' rights, this is something that has to happen as well. Because I think, well, quite often there are just some things that are illegal that keep on happening in sport because it's just like a silent acceptance, I would say. You know, mm. the, 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 the contract with the, the, the issues with contracts, for example or um, things like that. It's, um, so I think there, there are different ways to, to deal with that. But I, I mean, sports organization have to further just really embrace that change as well, I think. So I think that goes you know, to, the, to this idea of really working in partnership with, with player associations um, and athlete associations. So um, yeah, I think this, uh, this should happen and the, crisis should be used to rebuild better i think um we're trying to highlight that but uh yeah we'll see how how it goes yeah i i I definitely agree with you i think i do think that this yet this will certainly um you know shape the future of of sport not just in europe of course but the world thing it it certainly is um a huge turning point um, to end our interview here and to move on maybe to something a bit lighter, I, I, we'd like to finish with a more personal question. Um, and you mentioned before that you, you were a judo athlete before. Uh, we want to know maybe what, what are your sporting passions in life? Um, have you got, for example, um, other than judo, another sport that you play or a sports team that you cheer for? Hmm, that's, yeah, good question. Uh, it's maybe I don't watch that that much sports. I don't know if I should admit that, <laughs> but I don't. Um, I, I'm not that much into into watching sports. My sport that I really enjoy watching is volleyball. Um, I think it's it's because I'm from Poland. Uh, so Poland is now um, for the second term already a reigning world champion in mm-hmm. volley in volleyball. So it's it's a really huge pleasure to to see you know this uh, the the team progressing uh, so well. I still follow judo a little bit, especially okay. when it's uh, some of my friends. Yeah. Uh, so I so I watch that. Well, I wouldn't, of course, I wouldn't skip a big football tournament either. But uh, that's that's just from more from day to day. And for me, it's, uh, I didn't really since judo. I didn't find another such a huge passion. I would say. I do a little bit of running. I ran a marathon here in Brussels um, a few years ago. Yeah, that's that's a bit more than a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I don't think I will do it again. So <laughs> just just once, uh, just once is enough. Um, I really enjoyed mountaineering. I didn't have an opportunity to do it all that much, but a few years ago I climbed Mont Blanc. Uh, and right. that was an amazing experience. Wow. I think, uh, you know, added to the list when the pandemic is over, I would love to go um, for, an, for an expedition again. It's, it's just really a unique experience. And now I think as most of people, it's just some home workouts, <laughs> yoga <laughs> and uh, stretching. Yeah, right. Yeah, tell me about it. Paulina, thank you so much for your, for your time um, this week. And um, yeah, we wish you all the best for the really important and I feel really impactful work that you're doing in Brussels with, with EU athletes. Thank you very much.
That was Paulina Tomczyk, General Secretary of EU Athletes. I personally found it really, really informative and yeah, just super interesting. Um, the work that EU Athletes does in representing athletes from all over Europe in Brussels um, amongst the big guns, the big decision makers, I think is, is so, so important. Carl, what, what's your takeaway from, from the interview? I learned a lot of new stuff. And one thing that maybe some people, listeners out there don't think about and something that I don't really think about as well is this, this notion that athletes should just be happy that there are athletes that you don't see them as workers. You just see them as these athletes that should just enjoy life. Like why you're doing what you love. You can survive on this. So you don't, don't complain. Don't ask questions. Just do what you are told to do, which for me is kind of like when you think about it, it's kind of bonkers to think about that. Why shouldn't they be seen as workers? No, I think that that sums it up perfectly. I think that pretty much captures what we talked about with Paulina, right? I think the whole 45 minutes was pretty, pretty much surrounding, you know, the issues of the athletes right, as, 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 as workers, like any other worker in the EU. Um, and, and the point which Paulina made was that, you know, athletes are selling their work too, right? They, 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 they get up early in the morning too. They go to work, you know, they train hard too. Um, they've got often partners, families, you know, to take care of too. So it, it does, I think, trouble me when people sort of, say, hey, you know, it's, it's a privilege, you know, playing, playing sport, you know, is a privilege. But these people don't simply play sport, you know, it's, it's their careers, right? They put so many hours into it to make, to make something of themselves, to make a living for themselves and their families. So I think it's, it's complete, I think it's completely, completely unfair. Um, exactly. And as well, that they need to have a voice on the market they are working in. Because in other, in any other fields there, it's almost like, it's not even a question that uh, the workers in this kind of like, if you talk about like doctors or you talk about uh, lawyers, or even if you talk about factory workers, they sh like, it's almost like a obvious that they should have a voice in the market they are working in. But when it comes to athletes, it has not been that obvious. And I have to say that Europe is quite behind how it is in the US where they have a lot stronger players unions in, in each league. Sure. It brings me back to our conversation with, uh, with Dr. Till Blechol, right? We talked about the differences between, obviously, European player trade unions, as we called them, compared to the US ones, which were a lot more well-developed. You know, um, collective bargaining agreements have been part and parcel of professional US sport for a long, long time. And um, without them, you know, I don't think the franchise model would even work or exist. So I think there's certainly a lot to learn from the US. Also, I think the pandemic... Um, situation has certainly, I would say, accelerated the process. Perhaps it's 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 put it's it's as Paulina said, it's it's made players and athletes stand up and fight for their rights, you know, and, and leave nothing to chance because they they realize now that if they don't fight for what they need and what they want in terms of their rights, then no one else is going to do it for them. Yeah, I think that's an interesting part as well. So because maybe even as now as well, like athletes are getting more and more aware about their own rights and what uh, they can ask for as well. And they have a lot higher standards of who they are, like what they should have and should receive as the workers they are, as these uh, sports uh, men and sports women. And I think EU athletes, what they're doing, it's a, a very important job uh, they are doing as well to be this voice uh, for the athletes on the uh, on the EU level mm. yeah no I totally I think I think the interesting thing as well is that I think apart from in Brussels or in the sports bubble in Europe not many people know of EU athletes and the work that they do I think particularly you know in places like Southeast Asia where I'm from um, there's a lack of these sort of organizations that protect sport men and women you know in terms of their employment rights benefit rights um, and, and it certainly needs to be developed and I think EU athletes can be a really good template for for mm. other organizations to follow suit i really enjoyed it again i thought it's, it was very very apt and a really nice progression from last week's episode um about yeah. ghanic sport which talks about a different thing altogether but at the same time i think also kind of you know um touches upon issues to do with the rights of people in in sport exactly that's all what we are about here um 
yeah, and we don't want to stretch this out too long unnecessarily. So, so we're going to let you go. But before we do, we want to thank you once more for your support over the last couple of weeks, especially. Um, we've seen a really big hike in terms of our, our listeners, you know, and, and our followers as well. So that's, that's really good news. I'm obviously big up to, to Song Jin as well, who's been working tirelessly behind the scenes um, and everyone else um, who supported this show. And yeah, as, as always, peace and love. Thank you.